Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Welcome to another episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. I'm your slightly smoky host, Jonathan Edwards, and with me, of course, the uncomfortable questions made by a pilot to my captain over, Mr. Robert Lundgren. How you doing? Hello, hello. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. If I uh, occasionally cough or sputter a bit, um, one of my children decided to try and microwave uh, microwave ramen, uh, and they did not put water in it. That'll do it. Yeah. That yeah. will do it. Minor fire. It's all under control now, but now my house smells like burnt styrofoam and cheap noodles. Well, it's uh, about 8 o'clock there. You should be able to open the windows at this point, right? I mean, No, it's surely. still in the inferno, raging inferno outside. Do you want to envy, envy me, Jonathan? So the other week, it got up to a blistering, and this is how I know that I live in Oregon now and that I've fully converted. It was a blistering 86 degrees. 86 and i thought i was literally gonna die from heat because that that's just how things work in the pnw yeah 86 would feel so cold right now do, do you have any idea how, what the low was how, how about this how much did the temperature go down just once the sun was out of the equation 25 degrees it went down it went, went down five degrees an hour until we got to a nighttime low of 52 ah oh. it was beautiful man it was beautiful I'm not that lucky. Here, our lows are 85, and our highs are north of 100 these days. Wow. Wow. You're having one of those years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the trifecta of apocalyptic uh, notions. We got the Rona, we got this, uh, and uh, an election year. So, you know, a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. It says it's currently 87 where you live right now. Yes, which is still hot. And the sun's still out. Yeah, it is for about mm-hmm. another hour or so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Time zones are strange. The blessings of being really far south. <laughs> now the sun's out pretty late here too. Pretty late. Well, yeah, this time of year it would be for you. Yeah, yeah. Currently, it's sixty-six and overcast out here, Jonathan. And let me just tell you, uh, I was supposed to go to the beach today with my family. We we're going to record this a little late because of it, but uh, the weatherman's like, "Oops, we goofed. It's not going to be sunny today. It will be in the mid sixties in July." So that is my existence out here, my friend. I am envious. That sounds lovely. That's what I grew up with. So it got so cold, I almost thought about putting on socks. <laughs> almost. Don't don't get almost. out of control now. Don't get out of control. Hey. Hey, the flip-flop is like the national shoe of Texas, man. That's not that's that's not an untruth. That is absolutely accurate. <laughs> anyway, go on, sir. Sorry, sorry. I'm in a I'm in a I'm in a weird mood today, so just ignore me. It's all right. Currently 88 degrees here in Cedar Park, Texas. Humidity 59%, uh, wind out of the northwest at uh, approximately 2 miles an hour. Oh. Oh my. More hits and more news at the top of the hour. <laughs> um well then let's uh as always start off this uh episode with a big old thank you to our patrons over at patreon you guys are helping us keep the lights on and uh maybe giving me some breathing treatments thanks to my kids 
Also, uh, we turned on, or we got an Amazon affiliate account. Yes. We need to sell three things on it within the next three months. Otherwise, they will revoke it. So if you're going to buy something on Amazon, can you click through us? Or buy Pizza Girl by Gene Frazier, which we put a link in the last episode. And now that I said that out loud again in this episode, I can put that link in again. Is she getting an audio version of it? I do not know. Because you know, we know a guy. Yeah, but uh, I don't know if it's Ray's cup of tea because there are a lot of lady characters in that. It's a very lady-centric book. Mm, that would make it difficult. Yeah, that would make it difficult. Well, Jonathan, happy National Nude Day. Hey, hey, this is a day I can get behind. Uh, get naked, do less laundry, and save the environment while using that hashtag, National Nude Day. That is the National Day. And it was far more amusing than the other National Day, but I got to save that now. You know, you know what's actually happened? We've actually had an episode, I think, uh, because of randomness come out on the same day as a previous one that we had. And, uh, and yeah, I realized like when I explain all of the national days at once, it, it kind of like uses them all up. And so I got to like save them. Cause you never know when that like random occurrence of, of cross whatever will happen. It happened in February. If I remember correctly, it was really, that, that was why I had to do the international day once because I, I mentioned all of them in the previous podcast. Cause I was so tickled pink by all this national day stuff. So yes, you only get one. Look it up by yourself, I guess. I don't know. I got nothing. Move on, Jonathan. Move on. Well, then, I guess, Robert, without any further ado, it's time for our first segment. That is, of course, our off-the-shelf segment, the segment where we talk about all the wonderful things that we've had off of our shelves, onto our tables, and most importantly, into the dark recesses of our hearts. All right. Where do you want to get started tonight, Robert? I don't know. I don't know. Um, How about movies and TV? It's been a while since we started there. Okay, there you go. I've watched a lot because uh, it's been it's been a while since we recorded last because I was on vacation, which, uh, yeah, yeah, that was an interesting move. But whatever, you know, virus spreading everywhere. But apparently, luckily, not where my parents live. I got I, I found a website where you can break down county by county. And yeah, turns out rural counties not spreading too fast in them. While I was there, they had two cases during the week in total. <laughs> must be nice. nice yeah yeah your city was like exploding last i checked yeah it's not been a pleasant couple of weeks in the covid front no no so what have how have you been spending that time what have you been watching to uh to breathe some life into your staying at home well not a ton it's been a busy couple of work weeks so i have not i've been putting in a couple extra hours here and there and just not a ton of of time to be playing and watching, but I have managed to watch a couple things. Rewatched Rogue One, and uh, I gotta tell you, you know how with a lot of movies, especially Star Wars movies recently, how it just seems that every time you watch them, it's easier and easier to pick them apart. Yeah, <laughs> Force Awakens. <coughs> uh, with this one. Every time I watch it, it gets tighter and stronger. And I have to say, the third act of that movie is an absolute masterclass in editing and pacing. Just phenomenal. I haven't seen that movie since I, I bought it. It's so good. I really enjoy it. it it's, it's in my top three Star Wars movies easily. Easily. In fact, I think it's number two right now. Because Rogue One makes the original Star Wars better. But it's going to take a hell of a movie to beat Empire because Empire is just a darn good movie. Yeah, I I don't know. Like uh, the end of Rogue One and the way it segued directly into the first Star Wars movie, 
I, I, I didn't like that because that wasn't my vision of what was happening at the, because they totally saw that boat. Like they knew, they knew that boat and, and I never really got the sense that they had been chasing the boat for a while, you know, when princess Leia bamfs away in her blockade runner, you know, I don't know. That's just not my vision of, of how that opened up. I always thought they were just current. I can't even say that word right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know what just happened, but I'm just going to say, okay. I, I always, I always kind of figured that Vader, they had like figured it out and tracked them down. And it wasn't that they were like literally chasing them after this battle. Cause they, they mentioned in the opening scrawl that they had just won their first battle. And like, I, I don't know. I never got the sense that it like just happened <laughs> like, you know, a couple hours ago. That's like my only complaint about the game. I always thought that some time had passed uh, between the battle and them getting the plans and then when the Empire finally tracked them down. But I don't know. What what do I know? That's just me. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing good. That's good. Go watch it good. again. I think you'll uh, you'll enjoy it. I will I will put on the rotation. We are we are running out of things to do. <laughs> um finished Altered Carbon season two. Oh yeah, I had had to put that on pause because every time I sat down to watch it, something would happen. I wasn't able to concentrate on it, and that show can be a little bit dense. Uh, Really enjoyed it. I cannot wait to talk to you a bit more about it. I'm just going to let you go ahead and finish it. That would require me to start it, but okay, okay, I'll put that on the list. Gina, Gina, put that on the list. That's what we should have been doing the week that the eldest was out of town instead of just while we watched a lot of inappropriate stuff. Yeah, so my my eldest stayed for a week with grandma and grandpa, and yeah, it was like it was just HBO messed up stuff. Like after the boys went to bed every night, it was kind of fun because we just don't usually have the time for that, and we got to like watch a lot of stuff like that. It was great. It was great. There you go. Oh well, I missed my daughter. What can I say? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> I had a chance to sit down and watch a, a genuinely fun, really good movie. Hmm. Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of one Miss Harley Quinn. Okay, so I've heard a lot of good things about that movie, and it didn't do well. And a lot of people are like, this movie was poorly served by it not doing well. How? What was your opinion of it? This movie is phenomenal. It's so much fun. It is a fantastic DC movie that embraces the kookiness of some of the characters in the best of ways. And could still be plugged into the greater DC universe if they decided to keep it around longer. It is fantastic. It works as a one-off. It works as a continuation of the series. And it's just, it's phenomenal. They did a great job on it. An amazing job on it. So why do you think it, it didn't hit? I, I don't think it was marketed well. And and honestly, I, I don't know that how much love the DC universe has right now because unless you're Jason Momoa and Aquaman, everything else bombs. Well, it didn't bomb. It was made for eighty to a hundred million, and it made two hundred million, but definitely not like a no. But I mean, that's that's break even because you know your, yeah. your marketing costs are double your budget basically at this point. Yeah, but it's fantastic. Very well written, excellent acting uh, across the board. Uh, and it's fun and like I don't get to say that a lot about movies but it was fun intriguing I'll have to put that on the list oh hey I got curbside again I can actually put that on the list (laughs) Um, I don't know why it didn't do well it really genuinely deserved to do better and I don't think it's fair that it didn't it it came out at a really odd time it was early February uh, of of the year 
And I don't know what I don't know that they knew what they had on their hands. Yeah, February seventh. That's that's the that's it's a really bad time to be releasing a movie. Plus, on top of it, you had all the whole Rona thing happening, and that was when it was really starting to catch on, and people were starting to pay attention and not go places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a weird time because that's weird like three time. weeks before I was sent home. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I was definitely at the point where I was like, I'm not going to go see a movie in the theaters. Screw that. So I think I think it was just it wasn't even in theaters that long. Yeah, well, I think they I think most people closed down their theaters yeah. about yeah, around like early, I think that was early to mid-March. And they did the yeah. video on demand. And nobody knew, you know, anything about getting a movie that way. So it's just it's a I don't know, it was really really genuinely unfair to the movie because the movie's phenomenal. It's great. It's probably I think it's even better than Wonder Woman because okay, it's, it's, okay. It, it's it's fun and it knows what it is. Like a Harley Quinn movie should not be serious, but it, it, right. it, it balances out the comedic aspects with some some genuine, you know, feels from time to time and and does a very, uh, very difficult balancing act. And not only does it pull it off, it excels. The script was written by uh, Christina Hodson, and uh, yeah, I follow her on Twitter. She's she's delightful. Yeah, she um, and this makes me genuinely excited. She wrote the script for the Flash movie that's coming out. Is it coming out? I don't know. <laughs> Is uh, it really it's supposed to be twenty twenty two? But let me tell you, this uh, this script was so darn good that that just makes me that much more excited about uh, the the release of Flash. Yeah, I I don't know that the Flash movie has been in such just development hell forever. It's not even funny. Oh, she wrote Bumblebee, huh? And that was another movie that was surprisingly feels and frankly was the best thing that ever came out of that franchise. Huh? That's streaming somewhere. I'll I'll give it a go then because I I, I kind of hate watch all the Transformers movies from time to time because you know that movie, they're terrible. Bumblebee was fantastic, and it didn't like I walked into it thinking I was going to get more schlock. And I walked away saying, oh, my God, like they made a good movie. How does this happen? Michael Bay doesn't direct it. Oh, pretty much. Pretty much. And the direction was really good, too, Um, both both from a a framing element and a acting element. Just like everything about it was just phenomenal. It was really, really well, well done. I watched it with Jessica and she doesn't usually get excited about these, but she even walked away saying that was that was really fun. I really like that. And this was only uh, Kathy Yan's, I think, second movie directing? According to IMDb, she's produced a few things. Oh, she's got five directing credits, although three of them are short. So, yeah, her first movie movie was a movie called Dead Pigs. I don't think it was an effects-driven powerhouse. It's apparently about a pig farmer, a feisty salon owner, and a sensitive busboy, and an expat architect, and a disenchanted rich girl converge and collide as thousands of dead pigs float down a river towards a rapidly modernizing Shanghai. You know, with her directing, I'd watch it because she did such a fantastic job on uh, on Harley or pardon me, Birds of Prey oh. on Birds of Prey. All right, all right, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. All right, so what else have you been watching, sir? Uh, we sat down with the kids and we watched uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I think you talked about that last time. I couldn't remember if I did or not. I want to say because I I said I was about to do that with my kids and I didn't want to teach them how to ditch high school because I realized I did some stuff from that movie when I was a kid. It taught me things. I did too, and I looked right at Carlos and Chloe and said, "Sorry, guys, this won't work. We have texts." Yeah, uh huh, uh huh, Because you know the school texts us if anything happens. That's it's amazing. That's true. We do. It is 
amazing. We do live in the future. We do. We do. You didn't have any homework tonight. That's really funny because I got this text earlier that says you have this due tomorrow. Oh! <laughs> Did I ever tell you that I, I, I made Carlos spit out his water once? Really? Yeah. I, I looked at him. I looked down at my phone and I looked at him and said, why are we late to second period today? And he went... <laughs> <laughs> It was amazing. It was the best moment ever as a parent. It was just purely amazing. And then I watched something called The Order. Why have I heard of that? It's on Netflix. Okay, that's why I've seen it. Go on. So I'd like to start this set by saying it has werewolves in it, and that's why I decided to watch it. It's fair. Oh, God, it's so bad. Okay. And I can't stop watching it. It's a TV show. It is. But it's a weird TV show because they use F-bombs. Well, it's a Netflix TV show. That, that, that's becoming no longer a thing. So it's almost not worth mentioning. Oh, man. This, this kid goes to college, uh, which happens to be a real college in, in Vancouver that I recognized, which was weird. And he goes to this college because I guess his mom committed suicide and it was because of some dude. And that dude happens to be the the head of a secret society on the college. And so he's trying to get into the secret society to get revenge. And then all of a sudden he's a werewolf. You know what I'm looking forward to on Netflix and, uh, it's out now. It's after waking up in a morgue, an orphan teen discovers she now possesses superpowers as the chosen halo bearer for a secret sect of demon hunting nuns. Oh shit. I'm down. Is that, is that that show? The nun warrior nun warrior. Yeah. 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 I saw that yesterday when I was looking at Netflix. I was like, oh, man, when I'm done with this crappy show, I'm definitely watching that crappy show. <laughs> I was so excited. I was like, the only thing that's better than 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 early collegiate werewolf is friggin', you know, like, nun fighting. <laughs> All right, so uh, because my daughter's madly in love with uh, Tom Holland's Spider-Man, I decided to show her the OG Spider-Man and pretending that the third one doesn't exist. Uh, we watched Spider-Man 1 and 2. That's my kids. And Spider-Man 2 still stands up as one of the best superhero movies. You, you know, it didn't age quite as well because for me because um, I mean, part of the problem with all the Spider-Man movies and, and what they wisely avoided in the, the Tom Holland movies is they went over Uncle Ben's death again. And that is so like consuming of story like it it was it definitely loomed over the first one and it haunted the second one and it I know what you're See, gonna, I feel like it's more like the the backbone of the second one because that 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 is what what is constantly running in the back of his head even though life is getting in the way that he's 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 got that guilt that powers him into a better mental place right right but I I think the problem is like we've now seen that origin story now twice and I'm really glad they skipped it because it's it's yeah it just I don't know I don't know it just something I, I like i like kind of like the hints of it looming in the background because you know well we could go over we could pick apart the tom holland movies but this isn't no time to tom holland i mean ultimately ultimately the the, the new movies like uncle ben's already dead and buried when he gets his powers so we don't have to worry about it no wait that's not no, true no. he's already got his powers he's just dicking around no with no, no 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 I, uncle ben totally died uncle ben totally died like that that story happened they just didn't go over it no no i know it happened what i'm saying is like it, 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 they don't show it on screen and they they it, they they don't do any origin stuff he's just a kid in in new york that's living his best life 
and struggling with all the standard stuff that comes along with with high school, except he's also got this other thing that is just a wonderful allegory for puberty. Yeah, well, I, and Uncle Ben, if you watch Captain America Winter Soldier, they're moving into that apartment, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, like, Uncle Ben, like, just died, and they had to, like, move out of their house and move into a smaller apartment or something. So, I mean, it's there if you look for it. It's just not the focus. And the other problem is... Um, the sort of trope of the nerd pining over a girl and and uh, the characterization of uh, MJ in the first two movies isn't great. No. And that that whole storyline has not aged well at all. And it's 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 not even cute anymore. It's just kind of like it's it's just bad. But the problem is that's also a very key part of the story. And it's just like, ugh, you know, like. I, I really, you know, they do a much better job of giving MJ a character in, in the homecoming too. So, you know, like, I don't know. It, I, I was surprised. I remember really, really liking them. And as I was watching them, like these have not aged well. And I, and after the first one, I'm like, well, Oh, they're, well, they're also a product of 20 year old cinema. Right, right, right. And then after the first one though, I was like, Oh, but two was way better. And two even ha- was kind of like that. It was just sort of, it, you know, it was, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And and I love Toby. Don't get me wrong. I love the Toby Maguire. He made a good Spider Man. But man, Tom Holland, man, that guy owned it. <laughs> no, because deep down inside, I think Tom Holland is Peter Parker. Yeah, like legitimately from a from an attitude perspective. And I always got the sense that the Toby Maguire was playing a character that he's not. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that's what why why Tom Holland works so well and why he's so damn charming in it. Yes, yes. Also, well, he's British. British people are just charming. That's true. Hashtag facts. <laughs> uh so i don't know i i was kind of surprised i was not into the original spider-man it, it it had not aged as well which you know i mean it is what it is i mean and you're right the, the movie is 20 years old and it's really it's amazing how much better the effects got from part one to part two even though they were holy crap that's not a joke yeah oh but anyway um also uh me and the wife sat down and watched the 2019 charlie's angels and uh i got i'm s- so sorry i gotta say it was it was I, I watched it the way I wanted to watch it, which was I, I was playing uh, Nintendo Switch at the time, sitting next to my wife who was playing it on the big screen. But uh, actually, no, I stopped doing that. I think anyway. I no, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was it was it was a cute little action movie. I just uh-huh. heard it. It just doesn't go anywhere. Like it, it doesn't know what it wants to be. It doesn't know where it wants to go, and it just never becomes anything. It's just kind of this blob. You know, I I didn't get the sense of that it was it was kind of a spy movie. It, it reminded the plot reminded me a little bit of like mission impossible one. Cause there's like somebody's a mole and you're trying to figure out who's the mole and Patrick Stewart's freaking in it. And you know, it was, I, I, I was surprisingly engaged. I, I, I thought it was going to be something where I wasn't going to pay attention to it. And then I, I stopped what I was doing and paid attention to it. I, I had a good time. I mean, it's not great cinema. <laughs> it's not going to make you think afterwards. I was just pleasantly surprised that I enjoyed it as much as I did. So there you go. And, uh, and, and the ladies in it were, uh, you know, they were cute. They did some clever stuff at a few parts and there were explosions and, you know, they beat up bad guys. It was fun. I don't know what else to say. It was fun. You might notice this is a lot of stars stuff because uh, we got six months of stars for my wife's outlander addiction and it's going to go, <laughs> go away sometime next month. So we're like, we're like just like wringing all the stars out of stars that we can. Have you watched black sales? Is that, that's star. No, right? I need, again, that's probably something we should have done while the girl was gone. Yeah, well, try and squeeze that one in if you can, because season two of Black Sails is amazing, just amazing, and it is such a refreshing take on a on its on that story. So we watched Jim Carrey's Yes Man, 
<laughs> Next. Oh, God. The kids watched that. I watched 10 minutes, and I had to walk out of the room. It was too much for me. I, I'm not there anymore. Sorry, Jim. You were great on In Living Color. This is no longer for me. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I, You know, it was funny because, um, I mean, that movie is pretty old by today's standards. It's like 16 years. But, like, the whole trope of of a of the romantic lead in a movie being twice as old as the uh, lady lead. Uh, it was really painfully obvious in that movie. And it was kind of creepy. Like, and they sort of played off of it a little bit. Like they were sort of aware that it was kind of not cool, but it was like, it, oh, that trope needs to die in Hollywood. That movie, that movie was kind of gross because of it. Ugh. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was all right. But other than that was, that was the main. I can't remember who was the lead in that. Yes, man. 2008 comedy. 12 years old. Yeah, Zoe Deschanel. Comedy is, that- is such a strong word. I had an okay time wa- watching it. It's based off of a book I wanted to read. Regardless, it was all right. And then uh, on the last night of freedom we had, we watched Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay, don't say a word yet because it's sitting right here on my stack and I just haven't had a chance to watch it. Okay, okay. Damn. I really want to I've talk got about that one. That... The Current War, 1917, and Joker sitting on the pile. Okay. Well, watch that first. We'll talk about it next time. I really want to talk about it. And then last but not least, uh, Matt Coville, who did Strongholds of Followers and uh, a lot of other stuff, he does gaming streams. And he had a really interesting stream, which uh, uh, was one of his more recent ones. And it was uh, it's titled the, the Future of the Hobby, if you want to watch it yourself after we talk about it. But it was... It was riffing on just, uh, I don't know if you know this, but but gaming is going through yet another round of uh, Me Too and, you know, people getting called out for being kind of racist. Board it, games and video games. Yeah. Right it's ridiculous. Yeah, and tabletop. It's, yeah. Like, how, how did how did this not get all purged the last time? How is it that these little cockroaches just stick around in the shadows? It's disgusting. Yeah, well... Matt takes a long time to get to his thesis because he he goes off about song lyrics and things he was thinking about and blah, blah, blah. But uh, he basically asks the question, um, is Dungeons and Dragons fundamentally conservative in nature? He spends a long time talking about it, but like the answer is kind of like, yeah, you know, and and uh, it was it was just really interesting. It really made me think about it, you know, about because like a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, like for one, Dungeons and Dragons worlds kind of assume that there was some sort of apocalypse in the past yeah because there's dungeons full of like magic items that people made and ruins and whatnot and those people aren't there anymore but then there's also the strong sense of like you know was it keeping the covid this- apocalypse <laughs> <laughs> oh oh that's so funny um but there's there's also a strong sense of like keeping the status quo because you know in a lot of fantasy universes like thousands and thousands of years go by and nothing changes and you know uh yeah, it was just, it was a really interesting take. It was like, you know, cause I never, uh, I, I don't know if you could tell by the things we've talked about in this podcast, Jonathan, but I count myself as fairly liberal and it just never occurred to me. What? Yeah. yeah. No, it's just been making me think lately. You? Yeah. No way. I mean, yeah. you bake sourdough bread in your own house and live in the Pacific Northwest and have an aversion to pants and smoke a lot of weed. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> That's, those are not things that liberal people do. I don't know. It was just it was just really interesting, and he was kind of waxing nostalgic on it. And he he kind of commented that after he's done fulfilling his obligations to D and D, he might 
look into making something a little bit more, in his words, disco, which you'll just have to watch it to see what he yeah, meant. Yeah, I, I mean, there's an inherent problem with classical fantasy uh, in that it it is basically an allegory for race relations, and it always has been. And sometimes it's not as overt as it has been. You know what I mean? Well, how about this? I was listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff today, and Robin was talking about a Pathfinder novel he wrote, and I, I haven't read it, and I'm not exactly sure what they meant, uh, but he said that it was about a heist. You know, it was like a fantasy heist, and he wrote it in what he called the present tense, where you know they didn't refer to things as old or whatever. I, I, I don't know exactly what he meant by it. I kind of want to get this book and flip through just to see what it was. And he said a lot of people push back on it because fantasy, when you read fantasy, especially Tolkien and stuff like there's a, it's, it's, yeah, it's an old world and everybody is stuck in there. The the way things are done and, and nothing's new and everything. Yeah. And he said, yeah, just writing a fantasy novel, he got a lot of pushback and, uh, one of the guys that works with him at Pelgrane, uh, Garneth Hannerhand, uh, his fantasy novel that he just published is also written in the present test and he's gotten some flack for it, which makes me want to read it. Cause I, I, I want to know what, what it is, you know, cause I, 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 I don't know. I'm not a writer. I don't know the, the academics of it. I just have to read it and experience it. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird to think about. It's been making me rethink some of my, my gaming habits of late a little bit. Not that I'm not going to run my medieval Spain game because I'm too madly in love with it, but still. But I'd be interesting to see what disco D&D turns into. Yeah, but see, here's the difference, man. That Running a medieval Spain game, you're dealing with history, and so therefore you're, you're, you're trapped within it, whatever the it's, historical It's based on medieval – it's not, it's not medieval Spain. It's based on medieval Spain. Okay, yeah. well, then that's different, and yeah. so scratch all that. Yeah, <laughs> it's based on medieval Spain. Sorry, I should be, I should be clear. It's based on medieval – it's – yes, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Speaking of medieval Spain, though, this is a good way to segue. I'll go into my RPGs. I got a bizarre RPG. Uh, I went down to my local shop, and he was really cool to me, uh, as always. Thank you, Rune and Board in, uh, in Hillsborough, Oregon. You guys rock. And so I saw this on the shelf, and it just spoke to me because, because I've been kind of obsessed with medieval Spain. So uh, there's a company... Well, whatever. Uh, the game's called Aquilare, and the R is supposed to be rolled because it is definitely a Spanish RPG, but I can't do Aquilare? Aquil- yeah, I can't even do it. I've been trying, man. It sounds... It, sounds, yeah, it just doesn't work. But, uh, and Aquilare. It, that's the Spanish word for coven or ritual to summon a demon, and it's basically... Ooh, that's a fun one to have in your pocket. Yeah, and it's it's a funny game because it's set in the 14th century, 14th, 15th century, in Spain, and you basically play people who can st- who get into the study of magic to try to like raise your station in life. Um, I think I, that's how it's been pitched. I haven't gotten far enough into the fluff to see what they actually want you to do. But yeah, that, that, it holds out. But yeah, it's uh, like you can. It, it's hilarious because so the game's actually really old. It's on its third edition, and it was made by a company that used to translate D and D products into Spanish or in, into into Spain into, for like a Spain audience. And this was their first RPG, and it's like the anti. <clears throat> it's like the anti everything in America RPG because you you can literally summon the devil in it. Like there is a magic spell in the game that they describe to summon Lucifer and chat with him. You know, don't tell that to my city council people. You'll be accused of being a witch. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just so anti everything that was happening at the same time in the United States because you know they talk about you know books like they they talk about actual like angelic and demonic lore. 
And, you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty nuts. And I don't actually understand quite yet what the point of the game is, but it's it's still a fun read regardless because it's just so. And the weird thing is, speaking of going back to language and past tense and present tense, uh, it's weird to read because it's translated from Spanish and Sp- the Spanish language is very gendered, you know, and well, that that's inherent in the language. There's right. Nothing you can do about that. That's that is the way um, verbs are are tensed. Right, right, right. I, I'm not. I'm not disputing that. I'm, but, but what I'm saying is, oh no, weird. no, I know. It's just it. It's, it shows an inherent difference between Latin languages and Germanic languages because Germanic languages have gender neutral pronouns, but Latin languages all are are heavily gendered. Yeah, but what's weird is when they translated it into English, they just kept that, and so there's a lot of references to he and him. And in fact, the only time that they acknowledge that female characters can exist is when they specifically talk about uh, Bruja. B-R-U-J-A, is that how you say it? I don't even know. Bruja. Bruja. They talk about Bruja, and they talk about prostitutes. And that's the only time they specifically mention female characters. Everything else is him. And it's weird to read, because role-playing games got away from that starting in the 90s, and definitely by now, they use a very gender-neutral tone when describing your character. And in yeah. this, and it's just weird to read a modern game that is so gendered. But the book is freaking gorgeous. It looks like a medieval manuscript, and they've got all yeah, these you original. Sent me some really pretty pictures. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a cool thing. I I don't know if I'll ever run it, but I'm having a heck of a time reading it because um, it's just so it's so different. <laughs> it's just so different. And uh, yeah, yeah. And I found the magic spell. It's in there. You can you can summon the devil <laughs> and have a chat with him. Try to get some power from the devil. It's now it's a party. Now it's a party. Uh, yeah, good times, good times. Anyway, Aquilare, uh, Chiasium is publishing it currently. It was by Nocturnal Media, but, and you can buy it on PDF now, I guess, if you want. I bought it from my FLGS, and it's thick. It's a heavy, heavy, thick, beautiful book. Everything you sent, uh, to me looks gorgeous. Like, I'm totally, totally down. Yeah, yeah, we we should get all metal and, like, actually play a game of it. I I, I need to get to the end of it, because I got distracted. I was listening to an episode of Plot Points, and they reviewed a game called Thousand Year Old Vampire. And I realized it's also up for an Annie Award, which we will get to in the news later. But I bought the PDF of it because what they said is so it's, it's such a weird air quotes role playing game. Like it's hard to it's really hard to describe. But the book itself is beautiful. So it's basically a journaling game where you take on the persona of a, of a vampire that's very, very old. And uh, you have skills and resources that you can burn as you go, but it's basically like the diary. You write the diary of a thousand year old vampire. It's a bizarre game, but the book itself is gorgeous. Like it's, it's like an artifact of a thousand year old vampire. So it looks like an old diary that's like half falling apart and had like weird pictures taped into it and stuff. It's, it's a gorgeous book. I understand now why it's up for an any. This is all right up my alley. That's for sure. If you want to have a solo role-playing game, uh, go check that one out. I think it's like 12 bucks over on drive through RPG, or I think he's selling it for 10 as the PDF on itch. That's my reading, Jonathan. And I segued from Spanish stuff into the Spanish RPG and then into the thousand year old vampire. Have you been reading anything? Uh, yes, I'm reading Trevor Noah's book still. Um, I got it as a gift on father's day and I'm about three quarters of the way through it. And that is amazing. It's called born a crime. Oh yeah. You've been talking yeah. about that. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm just about done with it. And, it is just a phenomenal read from start to finish, and it's it really opens your eyes uh, to a lot of things. I I cannot suggest it enough. It is a phenomenal book. And then other than that, I'm on the tail end of Wise Men as well, so I'll be starting a new book real soon. Cool. So how about video games? What have you been playing? 
so on my Sega Genesis collection, I booted up Streets of Rage 1 and 2 with the daughter. Yes! And uh, I got to say, 2 is much better than 1, and my, my kid got bored of it, which is very upsetting, because I was having a good time beating people up. So we'll see if we'll play that again sometime soon. I remember when 2 came out, it was a big deal, because it was a 16 megabyte cartridge, and all the other cartridges were only 8 megabytes, and it was so that they could fit in the larger sprites with more animation. <laughs> like, I, to this day, remember what a big deal that was. Um, it was on sale on the PlayStation Store, and I bought a game called Greedfall, which I have a feeling is going to be a little bit uncomfortable because you are basically playing uh, – they're either it's, – it's a fantasy world, but they're either pseudo-French or pseudo-Spanish colonists that are colonizing the New World. And uh, I know one of the factions Nothing you can join – Nothing awkward about that. Yeah. I know one of the factions you can join are the natives, and you can fight against the people that you came there with. I, I don't know. I don't know why I want to play this game because it I, it does not sound like it's going to be uh, very good on the whole, you know, portraying things. Well, I, maybe it will. Maybe it'll portray things correctly. I don't know. But uh, yes, it's called Greedfall. If it, it does, cheap. it's going to be awfully depressing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious how they're going to handle it. And then I've been playing the hell out of Zelda Breath of the Wild lately. I got back into it. And oh, boy. Yeah, I oh, need to boy. sit down and finish it. Yeah, I'm about... I don't know how, how far I am through. That game's weird. It's like Skyrim. It's like Skyrim and the original Zelda had a baby. And it's it's really, really weird in that regard. But I, I've been just getting... I've been having a lot of fun exploring. And I accidentally read a spoiler about how many heart containers you need to be able to pull the Master Sword. And I'm like, I want me the Master Sword. So that's what I've been working towards right now. I've defeated like one of the four dungeons before you're supposed to go fight Ganon. So that's where I'm at. Um, but yeah, I'm, I've been working just to get heart containers by finding shrines and doing puzzles. And that, that, oh, that's so good. It's just a good game. There you go. All right, so what video games have you been playing? Uh, more Apex, of course, getting near the end of the season. Uh, really cool mid-season event that's been happening the last two weeks. Um, that'll be over by the time this is out. Um, but it's all, like, treasure uh, hunting-based. And so the skins and stuff have been really cool. They've been all in, uh, um, like, uh, adventure, like, pirate adventure. Got into Nino Kuni, which is a JRPG. Have you played that? I've heard of it. I haven't played it. Okay, it was on stupid sale uh, for Steam for the remastered version. I've put like twelve hours into it. I've been playing it a lot. Uh, it's uh, it's neat. It's like a Studio Ghibli movie come to life. In fact, Studio Ghibli worked on it. They did all the character designs and stuff. Hmm, that's cool. I mean, it's it's properly wacky. It's a JRPG, but that being said, it's it's got a lot of heart, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. And then um, uh, my buddy downloaded Forza Horizon 4, so we've been cruising around doing all the co-op stuff on that. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. How about board games? Any board games? Uh, yeah, we've been playing Potion Explosion, so much so that we bought the expansion, As have although I. we uh, we haven't played with the expansion yet. Get on that, man. That's You got to. I it, We just got it. I just haven't had the time because the kid came back and blah, blah, blah. So Potion Explosion is so much fun. I really enjoy that game. Yeah, it's good. It's very good. I've been playing a lot of that, too, um, which is nice because it's so quick, and I've got it on my phone, and it's always a fun one. And then beyond that, um, played uh, Flamme Rouge with the kids again, and they really enjoyed it again. And uh, playing a lot of, oddly enough, Canasta. <laughs> what? Yes. The favorite game of retirees in, uh, in homes, Canasta. Interesting. Yeah, the other night I found myself sitting in front of my $3,000 gaming rig playing Canasta until 2.30 in the morning. Interesting. 
And then later I had a distinct urge to go feed some birds. Because <laughs> that's my life now, Robert. Apparently, that's my life. Uh, and then finally, uh, played some Pan Am, but we won't be talking about that quite yet. Yes, we're going to talk about that later. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our off-the-shelf segment, which means it's break time. And when we get back, it'll be time for our Wisdom of Crowds. Do you have a tabletop, board game, miniature game, or RPG that you're going to release for retail? Or do you have an upcoming tabletop Kickstarter that you're about to launch? We would love to interview you for a future episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Send us an email to fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com to schedule an interview. And welcome back from the break. It is now time for our Wisdom of Crowd segment. This, of course, is our bi-weekly tabletop news segment. And first, an escape game, Robert. You've heard of the Unlock series, right? Yes. <laughs> this is made for me because we are getting Unlock Star Wars, the escape game. Nice, nice. Star Wars escape game includes three scenarios. There is an unforeseen delay where you are outer rim smugglers that are uh, transporting some contraband for our good old friend Jabba. Ooh. Next, you are going to do Escape from Hoth. Uh, You are part of the Rebellion, you're stationed at Echo Base, and you're on routine patrol on your Tauntaun, and your base becomes unreachable. Oh. And then finally, secret mission of Jeddah. You are an Imperial spy that is attempting to retrieve a crate of Go's good old-fashioned kyber crystals after the shuttle carrying them crash. Nice. And apparently, that's the one that will have Saw Gerrera in it. You're trying to avoid him. and that's what you do as an imperial spy so there you go i might have to buy this the the unlock games are pretty good but this one is too much for me i can't not get it unfortunately so uh over on the dungeon masters guild a adventure called curse of hearts with the subtitle a house full of gay vampires uh got removed the other week oliver clegg the author had an interesting tweet thread about why his adventure was removed, and it basically had everything to do with his art that he chose to put into it. Uh, there were a lot of dudes, a lot of a lot of naked naked dudes. Not no full frontals. Everything was you know tastefully hidden behind you know D and D style tree branches and tentacles and whatnot that you find in D and D. Well placed potted plants like in Austin Powers. Exactly. But (laughs) it pointed out a very big problem that the DMs Guild had because he basically said he put it up because he assumed this would happen. And all of the art pieces he knew they'd have problems with, they are directly based off of art assets you get when you join the DMs Guild. And they give you a bunch of free art assets, except the art assets that he copied from were of tastefully hidden, nude, and scantily clad women. And yes, the DMs Guild apparently has no art direction hold on hold on it's a trap (laughs) well played good for him yeah yeah so it's kind of interesting i I, actually i was thinking about this as i was watching once upon a time in hollywood because uh as i was watching that movie i got reminded that quentin tarantino has a foot fetish um (laughs) but you're the second person to say that to me in the last week (laughs) <laughs> My buddy Jamie just watched the movie, and he said the same thing. It started sending me screenshots of feet. 
But but yeah, yeah, no, it, it was making me think of that whole concept of, you know, the male gaze and like the art was very it was very much aimed at the uh the the queer gaze, I guess is a, a word for it or the the whatever. I don't know what you'd call it, but at, at not the male gaze. And yeah, no, they had a problem with that and they said it was way too suggestive and and yeah. You know <laughs> was, what? Way to point out the complete double standard. I think that that was a beautiful move on his part. Well played. To his credit, he's been kind of posting what they've said, and he said that they have been very nice to him at the DMs Guild. Uh, they didn't have to let him have his adventure back because basically once you put it on the DMs Guild, you just sign away all your rights to it. It becomes Wizard's property, but they decided to give it back to him. And that they've been the people he's been talking to have been very professional and very kind and you know, and he's like, don't don't harass them. They don't deserve it. They, it's not like they're being awful to me, but it's raising some no, points. But it, it it raises a valid point, though, and it it, yeah. it it needs to be discussed and it needs to be embraced. Right, and that and that's what he said. Which which has happened because DM's Guild has now said they 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 are going to go to Wizards and they are going to hammer out actual art directions because also because of this they've got people pointing out a lot of art that you know is suggestive, but it happens to be of women and that's been skating by. And it's, it's straight up in the art packs they give you, you know? Yeah. Like, like they said, his art was too suggestive and in BDSM themes. And then there's a whole bunch of art with demons and like BDSM gear, you know, with like flails and in leather straps and whatnot. And, you know, there's a picture of a succubus and she's very clearly like nude and, you know, and it's like, what's the difference, you know? <laughs> and and it's like you know he's got there is none frankly it's it's ridiculous that there there would even be one and I'm really glad that he he found them in the double standard because yeah you know whether whether or not it's appropriate is to up to each individual right right but the fact that they you know have clearly stated that you know boobs and scantily clad women and demons in BDSM gear is is fine but dudes and scan naked dudes or you know tastefully hidden naked dudes and and people in bdsm gear is like that that's that's a bridge too far and it's like where do you you know oh yeah because you know barbarians are always so well clad in clothing yeah yeah but i it, it does raise a good point so good on the guy um any uh, he's i've been following his twitter thread on this he's been very very he's been very very clear about well one his intentions but two about like what's been going on with them and how they've been treating him and he's been saying you know straight up that they've been very nice to him so this is just this conversation that this company needs to have and and you know it's like it's working so hooray don't send them it seems like they're they're doing it the right way they're realizing that they were in the wrong and that they need to have better rule sets about it yeah yeah exactly and get the boobs out of D &D, because oh my god fantasy art ah anyway Moving right along, back to you. So, uh, back in 2019 at Essence Spiel, you know, back when we could all be together in rooms. Right. The good old days of 2019. Uh, there was a game release called Aquatica by Cosmodrome Games, and it was from a designer called Ivan Tuzovsky. It was in very, very limited release at Essence Spiel, and it was all the talk of the show. Uh, it's an engine-building game uh, where you use a small deck of personal cards to execute actions, and you get to add more cards to your desk by collecting locations uh, that you either purchase or conquer. It's got kind of a nautical theme to it. Go hmm. figure with a name like Aquatica. Right. Well, it's been picked up by Arcane Wonders, and it's coming to the U.S., and it's going to get wide release. And it'll be available in October of this year uh, with limited quantities available during Gen Con Virtual. 
Well, speaking of uh, online conventions, the Ennies for 2020 have been announced. And it is far too extensive to go into, but there's a lot of good role-playing games and stuff there. Uh, but I'm going to read you the l- products of the year, uh, because that'll give you a good overview of things to keep an eye on. Uh, first up, we've got BFF, Best Friends Forever. <laughs> the deck of mini animated spells. Uh, I saw that in Kickstarter. Those are lenticular cards that feature D&D spells, and so they're kind of animated. When <laughs> you do it. That's cool. Mork Borg, the art punk RPG which was, I believe, by our friends over at the, the Free League. Quest, which I know nothing about. Royal Blood. The Excellence. Excellent Princess Role-Playing, which I am intrigued just on the excellence alone. Uh, Thousand-Year-Old Vampire, going back to what we were talking about earlier, which is a heck of a book. Uh, Trilemia, Adventures Compendium Volume 1, which I've heard good things about. Witch Plus Craft, which is, uh, I, I almost backed this on Kickstarter. I didn't do it because I just didn't think I'd ever play in the game. But it is a subsystem for D&D 5th edition that adds in very hardcore crafting rules. Uh, so much so that you basically take an extra class. So you might be like a fighter or you might be a wizard. But uh, either of those could also be a brewer who makes beer. It, look, it looked super cute. The art's like awesome on it. But yes. And Zombie World by our good friends at Magpie Games. So yes, those are up for products of the year. There's a lot of other stuff on there, obviously. Uh, and voting is open, so go vote for stuff if you are so inclined. Well, guess what? Uh, friend of the show, Stephen Bonacore, is retiring. I saw this. And this is kind of a big deal. He's everywhere. When you when you hit the convention circuit, it's hard not to run into him. And he's he's always very, very, very kind at the shows and talks to everybody. And it's uh, fantastic. He says that uh, he'll still be a fixture at cons. Uh, but he's going as a, uh, as yeah, he's, a, he's not going to die. He's just retiring. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. But you know, he's he, in his retirement. He's still embracing the hobby. Yeah. Well, yeah. A little sad, a little sad. Sad to see him go, but I, I do hope that I'll run into him at the next con I go to. Well, that brings us to the end of the news, which means it's now time for our no time to bond segment. And you're going to be surprised on this one, Robert. It's time for part 14 of our 28-part series. We are halfway, buddy. I know. I'm so excited. We are watching, of course, the 007 movies in order of release. Just go listen to the last 14 episodes if you haven't tuned in yet. So tell us about what we're, we're watching today. This is our first deviation in the series because we keep adding stuff to it. Released on October 7th, 1983, we watched Never Say Never Again. Or Thunderball 1.5. I'll accept either. Yes. A mere four months after our last movie, Octopussy, came out. What a difference, right? Yeah. Wow. One of my kids is just screaming. He is upset. He probably is not getting iPad time because he refused to take an adventure bite. Anyway, uh, so to compare and contrast, uh, for a budget of $36 million, which was $9 million more than Octopussy, and I would I would say it easily showed, although I'm sure Sean Connery got a pretty oh, fat yeah, check. Oh, no. Absolutely. It made $160 million, or approximately $27 million less than Octopussy. Um, still made a, made a fair amount of money. Uh, it was a remake of Thunderball using the original script that was developed with Kevin McCory and Ian Fleming. And then Ian Fleming used that script to make a book, and then they used the book to make a movie, so things changed. Uh, like uh, uh, Fatima Blush was not in the original movie, but she was in the original script. So that explains a few of the changes to the plot and whatnot. 
And uh, basically, yeah, because Ian Fleming didn't get permission to turn that script into a novel, he got sued and there were rights issues. And Kevin got the ability to remake this movie at some point, And he did. It's surreal. It's surreal. Yeah. It's it, the weirdest thing ever. I, I would agree. So like it's up there with with the Spider-Man universe existing outside of the <laughs> the Marvel verse. I remember there was this period of time Except when s- it. It doesn't. Where, where somebody got the rights to Casino Royale, which were separate from the other Bond rights, and they got the rights to this movie, and they were trying to say that gave them the ability to make Bond movies, and there was another big series of lawsuits, and I think that's why Goldeneye got delayed uh, so much. Uh, no, that's why there was only two Dalton flicks, because Dalton's contract expired. yeah. yeah, yeah during the legal uh, pushback, and then they had to retool the whole thing for GoldenEye with Brosnan, and that delayed it even further. I yeah. Think, if yeah. I recall correctly. Yeah, well, well, we'll get there. I'm sure we'll research that when we get there. But yeah, yeah it's uh, complicated rights issues. But yeah, we've got this weird tangible Bond universe starring Sean Connery. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, okay, so I- I'm curious on your opinion of this because uh, watching all these movies in order again, I remember liking Never Say Never Again, and uh, my opinion was not changed actually watching it. This one always existed outside of the continuum for me, and I don't know that I ever gave it a fair shake, and I'm glad that we went back and did this because I did give it a fair shake, and it was a much better movie than I remember. Oh my gosh. And I would say that it's actually a much better movie than than certainly Octopussy was. <laughs> True. And it also took Thunderball and made it a lot more realistic yeah. and interesting. That being said, there's some serious pacing issues in the middle of this movie. That's true. That's true. So uh, this one was directed by uh, uh, Ir- Ir- it was Irving Kirshner. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Who my- you might know from uh, such hits as The Empire Strikes Back. Only the best Star Wars movie ever made. His direction was really good. Yeah, he's a great director. And he's, it, it, where it starts is with the frame. Like, every frame is a beautiful painting. Yeah, it, yeah. It's so beautifully structured, as was Empire, as was everything he's touched. Yeah, well, I you know I didn't really realize it, but, like, he's a very modern director because he mm-hmm. makes really good use of that, like, 70-millimeter space where – because uh, John Glenn and a lot of the Bond people, they, they screw this up all the time. They always have Bond, like, set or frame constantly. Well, yeah, because they're old school. Like, they're thinking, like, it's the, the 50s and 60s still, and camera technology had changed dramatically in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, and and – just the framing of shots and drawing your eye and using negative space and, and just really being able to take it all in and giving you that really like big experience that you couldn't get on TV because it was so square. It was so L7. Yeah, no, it's it's just so, so impressive. You know, like uh, just the way the way it was directed was was very impressive and it made it made the whole experience much more cinematic than I remembered and just made it seem so much bigger and larger than life. And, and it, it's honestly, it's like what the bond films needed for a really long time. I didn't realize it wasn't there until I saw it again. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> well, I, I think I texted you during this, it, 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 during my watch of it. It's not only does it feel like a modern movie, but it reminds me more of the Dalton flicks than any of the more flicks. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it takes itself seriously it still has fun, but never at the expense of Bond, which is something well, no, the they other do, movies don't do well. They do kind of have fun at Bond's expense because they acknowledge that he's old, which is another weird thing about the Moore movies because they just pretend that he's not 
really old, <laughs> you know, but in this one, they embraced that Bond's older and it was like story beats were because Bond was older and it, but it worked because, but, but it's not, it's not, how do I phrase this? They're not making fun of Bond inadvertently, I guess is, would be the better way to phrase it. Yeah. Yeah. Because like th- there's oftentimes and in Octopussy literally uh, where, where Bond comes off more of as a clown than a, uh, than a super spy. Yeah, that's true. And this one, he was definitely dangerous. Like the, the pre-credit sequence I really liked because it wasn't some like cockamamie scheme or heist or whatever. It was just like Bond storming a base and murdering everybody there. <laughs> yeah. And and it just it made him it made him still seem dangerous. Which He's a commando. I, he, yeah. They, they make him into what he actually is, which is a highly trained military tool. I like the because they did play up that he's older and that he's retired and that his the the current uh, M doesn't believe in him and doesn't like the double O squad because it kind of set up this weird thing where Bond's like the underdog and he wanted to succeed because he's like the plucky underdog, I guess. But like embracing the notion that he's older and and the underdog made the film a lot better because I found myself cheering for him when he had his kind of weird successes. Well, (laughs) And it's, it's some of the same stuff that made the Judy Dench M character so effective in the Brosnan and the Craig movies in that it points out that, that the fact that this model shouldn't work as well as it does and that it's antiquated and old and needs to be retired. All that. Yeah, no, I, I, it's the best bond movie I've watched in quite a while. Like I, I was very impressed with it. I, I really, really liked it. Yeah. It's I, a, it's a real pity that it took so long. Uh, you know, we, we, we had to go through and this is not, saying anything negative about view to a kill. Cause I love that movie for a, a variety of different reasons, but it's a pity that we got another formulaic bond movie before bond started taking some chances that it should have learned from this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what, if anything, they're going to learn from this movie. Um, it seems to be a problem. I've noticed Eon, ha- Eon productions has, they, they rest on their laurels sometimes a lot actually. And when they get, the bright idea to reboot, they do a pretty good job or to shake things up. But like the difference between golden eye and die another day is, is a really clear example of that, I think. Mm-hmm. But well, I guess we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, okay. We, we have talked about a lot about what we liked in, in the movie and even a little bit of what we don't like, but yeah, the, the movie's got problems. R- rapey bond. Oh, that is back. second act is a little rough, man. Yeah. But, but, but Sean Connery, rapey bond comes back. He, he Oh yeah. In full force. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like in really full force, which is funny because that's juxtapositioned against, uh, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing and why I'm doing it so that it's not creepy bond. Yeah, that, that, that oddly woke scene where he, he was like, I'm going to kiss you right now because I'm trying to piss off the villain and because I want to because I'm a creep. And it's like, well, bravo for saying that out loud, Connery Bond. I, I guess that's an improvement. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, yeah, compared to just slapping a woman for being hysterical. Yeah, and just doing it without saying anything because, you know, why, why bother to tell the lady what he's going to do? It doesn't matter. You know, so I, I guess that's good on him. But um, yeah, the soundtrack to this movie is also god awful. Oh, whoa, that is a train wreck, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's real, real bad. I, I think I texted you that they they made a modern movie, an almost '90s movie. Yeah, but they they imported like a an early '70s, late '60s score. It's just trash, and it doesn't fit. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I I think I, I read somewhere on IMDb that like James Horner, they were 
they were courting him, but Sean Connery vetoed it. And some dude he met in a lobby at, in the studio, he hired instead. And I'm like, uh, like he basically got the soundtrack out of the back of a van, you know, and it shows. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. The only other thing that I really noticed that jumped out at me is just weird and really dates the movie is uh, uh, Fatima's uh, plastic outfit. Oh, yeah, it was so 80s. It was great. So 80s. Also, creepy German guy is creepy. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, he was straight on creeper creepy. Yeah, yeah. And the video game they play is is nonsensical. Oh, yeah. No, that's just trash. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's really odd. Like, yeah, they stumbled into a much more modern movie. And I, I'm sure Eon is not going to pay any attention to it. I'm 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 sure I'm going to be disappointed, like comparing and contrasting this. And I, I'm with you. I like View to a Kill because it's it's kind of garbage, but it's a, it's a fun garbage. But yeah, I, I, it's I was walking. watching. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I so desperately want them to learn lessons from this because it, this was legitimately a good movie. And, and I think maybe part of their problem was, you know, they'd done 13 movies by that point, And they're so like laser focused on turning them out because Eon Productions in its entire history, I think, has only produced two or three movies that were not Bond related. One of which is on our list, uh, uh, which we're going to do as a bonus thing last. But um, and I think the other one was like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or something weird like that. But <laughs> yeah, you know they're so laser focused on Bond that they get kind of tunnel visiony, um, and and they need to not do that. They need to like pay attention to other people's stuff. Man, they they're, they're hitting that mimeograph machine pretty hard for about you know twenty years. <laughs> See, right? I, I made it topical. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i just get the sense that they don't they they just don't pay attention enough to like what other people are doing and they really really need to i i think part of it also is that they're just they, they're, they know if the formula for making it it's safe and it reliably makes the money yeah until it colossally fails and doesn't but i i lied there's six non-bond films they've ever produced uh Call Me Bawana in 63, The Silent Storm in 14, The Ra- Radiator in 14, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool in 2017, Nancy in 2018, and The Rhythm Section, which is the movie we're going to watch, which came out with a thud this year, and I've never heard of it, and I never saw a commercial for it, so we're going to watch it because it's supposedly a spy movie with a, a, with a, a lady protagonist. So, yes, I want to see what they do or how they screwed that up, that it landed so, so much with a thud. <laughs> Which, again, maybe it's the the whole problem with them resting on their laurels. But we're talking about the future more than the uh, more than the actual movie itself. Do you, do you have anything else to say besides it was surprisingly good? Yeah, I mean, just it was surprisingly good. The second act really hangs up a lot, but mm-hmm. it's made up with a really tense and well put together third act. The special effects were really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm they su- were smartly used. Yeah. Thank really you, well. Kirshner. Yeah, yeah. But I will tell you this, the score, not only does it not fit, but it actually weakens the movie because it doesn't enhance it, which is what a good score should do. It it detracts from it. It's distracting and it's just, oh, it's so bad. Mm hmm. Yeah. If I had anything to add, it's I mean, it's got all the problems that Connery movies generally have. They're a little bit better about a few things. But uh, yeah, no, overall, it was it was it was really surprisingly engaging. Like it was also surprisingly modern. Yeah. Yeah. 
and just and just beautifully shot that whole I, I mean it's in I think it's near the end of the third act but when Bond comes back to the safe house after uh, Fatima Blush has killed everybody there like the whole way they shot that that weird house was was beautiful yeah no it was really clever because it's it's a lot of white walls and weird angles like the house itself is made kind of strangely but like he filmed it in a way that just kind of added to the the weird sense of of foreboding and it was just it was so well done I, I'm like this this mm. This this seems marvelous, <laughs> and and well, if anything, it's a, it's a wonderful um, commercial about why Irving Kirshner was such a good director. Yeah, yeah, and Bond ate an apple, and as I found out, you know what uh, eating an apple is shorthand in Hollywood? Cockiness. Yeah, that makes sense. If you ever see anybody eat an apple in, in a Hollywood film, it's because they are being cocky. It is shorthand. It is communicating to you that they feel they are being cocky. That's why Kirk eats one in. Uh, two right before he does a surprise like hours seem like days the most stupid code ever that's why he does it in star trek uh part one uh, the the reboot series when he's uh winning the kobayashi maru eating an apple that's what it means now you can't unsee it <laughs> true just like that vein in uh, julia roberts forehead now you'll never be able to not see that you're welcome i mean i've known about that for years i know I just, yeah it's it's there yeah, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. You always notice it after that. No, it's there. It's there, Robert. It's there. Mm-hmm. 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 So uh, next time we have our personal guilty pleasure of the Bond oh, of You to a Kill. I don't think that it's going to be good, but I think I'm going to friggin' love it. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I, I, I hope so. I remember... I remember there's a lot of points in it where I felt a lot of the ways I felt about Octopussy, but then Christopher Walkett gets on screen and all of a sudden it's much more entertaining. And he's grinning from ear to ear and it's just ridiculous, but he's so over the top with his villain that the ridiculous just makes it better. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how we feel next time. I'm really, I'm genuinely looking forward to this. And that'll be the last more movie, man. We'll bid him adieu. Move oh, on to the Dalton. Man, that's that's the end of an era, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's hard to believe. I mean, we've been with more since what? Uh, 70... 71. 71. And this will be 86, I think? 85, I think. Kill? 85. It's every two years. So 80, 83, 85. Yeah, man. That's, uh, that's rough, man. That's a long time. I'm really curious what's going to happen after Craig retires in this next movie, which may never see the light of day because... <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Rona. Thanks, Rona. <laughs> and that's that's the capper on, on what is arguably the best Bond series to date. Yeah. But anyway, we're talking about the future and not what's going on right now. So we should move on. All right. Well, that brings us, of course, to our year in the life segment. This is our segment where we take a look at what we deep dove a year ago in the pre-Rona days. And we have some time to talk about it again. So what was that? Uh, if we're 91 now, 60-something or other? Forgot my dice. Episode 67. High concept humor. Oh, oh, look at the game we reviewed. It's so topical. We talked about pandemic rapid response, which is uh, <laughs> a the work target for the U.S. government. Oh, <laughs> so I, I've seen this at Target. Ooh, that, that stung a little. Let's <laughs> <laughs> sink in after a while because it, it, it first it made me want to be sad and then it was just so sad it made me want to laugh. And and we're going to get, you know, November's coming. We, we have a chance to fix this problem. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, anyway, I, I, I've, I obviously didn't buy it. Have you played a Pandemic Rapid Response? 
Uh, yeah, actually, oddly enough, a fair amount. Um, I, I met some friends in Florida in January, and that was one of the games that we played a lot because it's so quick and easy to play. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I keep seeing it at Target. I keep thinking about it, but I haven't. I, you know, Target regularly has stuff on sale, and I'd say if, if if you can catch it on sale, it's a good buy. I mean, it's a good buy for full price, but it, it's it's a good buy. Yeah, I'm thinking if I buy another version of Pandemic at this point, it's going to be Pandemic Iberia, though, because I that one speaks to me. I know it does because you're such a Spainaholic. I know Spain's Spain's amazing. I actually want to go to Spain, which is weird. Uh, I, I, I have I'm spent not much many moons in Spain, and it's a wonderful country. I, I I do not have much of the travel bug, but I would love to go to Spain. <laughs> I don't know why Cordoba. I, I do have the the travel bug, and I can tell you that I would retire and live out my days in Spain with a dog and a a villa quite nicely, and your wife, right? optional oh, oh oh i'm just kidding i'm just kidding she doesn't <laughs> listen to the show please don't tell her that this happened <laughs> i'll cut that out just in case <laughs> uh no of course my family's welcome to come visit whenever they want <laughs> so your wife can come visit. <laughs> oh yeah she can come visit hang out for a couple days and then uh, i can go back to being uh, alone in the spanish countryside with my dog so I've been uh, I've been making a character for Thousand Year Old Vampire, and I decided to make him from Spain because you know why not? I'm obsessed. I might as well do it. And uh, I was reading about. Um, I, I was like, I want my guy to play an instrument for some reason. I was like, what what instruments did they play in the uh, the thousands in Spain? And I found out about one called the Hurdy Gurdy, and I'm like, that is the most bizarre name. It's like it's like a crank. Wait, you didn't know about the Hurdy Gurdy? I've never heard of it before. It's like it's a kooky instrument. It's, it's crazy. Like a, it's like a crank powered lute. It's bizarre. Yeah, uh, it, it was uh, big in pirate culture, oddly enough. Yeah, so I, I need to listen to some hurdy gurdy music, but the name the name got me and 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 then a lot of sea shanties were written with the hurdy gurdy in mind. Just crank that thing out, man! Crank it. <laughs> Have you ever heard one? No, I I was gonna do that, but then it sounds like a lute and a harpsichord are simultaneously being tortured while making love. I can get behind that. I like that. It's it's an odd off kilter sound that works. Well, tell you what, I won't call it pretty. I'm going to go listen to it in the break, and I will report back during the deep dive. How's that? As long as you, as long as you send me the link as well, because I want to hear what you're listening to. Okay. I'll tell you if it's a good, good example. Okay. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our year in the life, which brings us to the end of this segment. Go play some Pandemic Rapid Response. It is a very quick and fun game. I really enjoy it. When we return, it'll be time for the new hotness, something that just hit targets very specifically everywhere not everywhere i didn't see it today i would have made note of that ah it's not in the normal board game section it's got its own end cap with all the new releases oh i didn't look there yeah 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 that's right oh not bad we will be of course departing for board game land when we play pan am in just a few moments we love getting feedback so please let us know how we're doing by one of the following you can become our patron over at Patreon. Search for Forgot My Dice. We also have a Discord page where we organize games and chat about all sorts of stuff. Find a link on our website, ForgotMyDice.com. You can also message us or tweet at us on the Twitters. Find us at Forgot My Dice. And of course, you can email us at FMDPodcast2016 at gmail.com. 
Or you can head on over to our website, ForgotMyDice.com, where all of our episodes are available, plus game reviews and other content. If you like the show, the best way for more people to find out about us is to give us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Last of you, for those of you listening in the village, call the operator, give your number, and ask for us to be put on the rotation. Robert, this, this needs to stop. Listen, I'll, I'll make you a deal. I will not make any deals with you. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. Oh, I'm going to cut his cord. And welcome back from the break. It is now, of course, time for us to go into our deep dive. And in this episode, we'll be deep diving Pan Am. Before we get started, I I watched two videos because the first one was this lady who looks like Tori Amos uh, playing the hurdy-gurdy, like a really modern one. And I was actually kind of cool. And I'm like, why why did that not become a thing? But Jonathan informed me that's not how they really sound. So I went and tracked down a guy playing. No, not even close. That lady was playing a beautiful, modern instrument that was made out of like space age materials so i went and found a guy playing a medieval one and it sounded the same in the sense that you obviously played it the same way and it was being able to produce the same notes but there was a lot more like buzzing and whininess to those notes (laughs) that was missing in the modern one it was pretty impressive though it was it's it's like how how is this not still a thing that's a great instrument the modern one sounded gorgeous you know i'm like why aren't people playing that now the old one sounded old but it was still kind of cool so there you go you can bring it back pass but thank you the hurdy-gurdy is one of my favorite things about the sea of thieves um, because everybody has musical instruments and you can all play them at the same time and everybody will play a different part (laughs) and the hurdy-gurdy is one of them so you can have somebody playing the hurdy-gurdy somebody playing uh like a a flute somebody playing a drum it's all right all right but that's not what we're here for pan am world airways ruled the skies and made travel more accessible without sacrificing glamour. Players take control of their own fledgling airlines and compete with Pan Am and others to build a business empire. Outbid rivals for lucrative landing rights in exotic locales. Buy planes with longer range to reach the far corners of the world. And use insider connections to advance your interests. As you bump up against the ever-growing Pan Am, you can sell your routes to the company to turn a tidy profit. It's a game of global strategy that spans four decades of industry-changing historic events and technological developments in which every timeline is different. Let me open this up on the good old Board Game Geek so I can look at pictures because I was looking at yeah, it earlier. and you need to look at a picture of the board. Specifically. Oh, the map's gorgeous. I've already, I've already looked this up. Don't get me wrong. I, I've already and, and, and the viewpoint of the map is actually quite clever because you're looking at the world from the top down. Yeah, yeah, which I, I thought was actually very clever. I like that. Well, especially since airplanes fly you know, efficient routes for them. And since they're flying around the globe, no, the earth is not flat, flat earthers, you are dumb. You regularly will take a a polar route because that is the quicker route. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. But yeah, no, it's the, the map is, it's quite old timey and interesting. And I did everything about this game, uh, from a graphic design standpoint is beautiful and perfect in every way. It's gorgeous. All right, Jonathan. So teach this to me. How does it play? All right, so you got a couple different things going on on the board once you put the board out. First of all, you're going to have some areas, A, B, C, D, and E. And those are important, and the reason they're labeled that way is because that is also the order that you'll be resolving things in once you play. Now, you'll see that the the map is primarily made up of the continents, of course, and all the different routes. And these routes are are pre-existing. Think uh, Ticket to Ride. Yeah. The routes are all there. 
And, and the, the crux of the game is that you are trying to get as much stock in Pan Am as possible. Even though you're a rival, you're trying to buy up stock in Pan Am to have, uh, you know, basically the largest sum at the end of the game, which would be considered controlling interest. Okay. So how are you doing it? Well, that's where things get really interesting. So the, the, the first thing that you're going to do in any given turn is what's called uh, the event. And there's what's really neat is that the event deck it consists of seven cards uh, that are all n- numbered rounds one through seven. And you get five or six different round ones, five or six different round twos, etc. So you get to mix and match these and have a different set of seven rounds every single time you play. Hmm. Uh, the first thing you do is the event phase. You reveal the event for the round and you look at the stock price and the stock price will be written in the lower left-hand corner of the card, and it will either tell you to move the stock price up by one, down by one, or to set the stock price to a specific predetermined number. Generally, in round one, it's going to be a predetermined number. Now, what's happening in the game is that um, Pan Am's stock is moving up and down based on uh, things that are going on, uh, on in the world. So, for instance, there's a card about the Great Depression, and guess what? The stock tanks. Yeah. Uh, now, the stock's going to be important not only for, for winning and losing, but because there is a mechanic for selling your stock um, if you need to, to get cash. And so it's important that the, the stock is that you're watching what the stock is doing because it could, you know, potentially cripple you. Well, that makes sense. Like if you if you because it's like the real stock market. So if it's fluctuating, you know, you can you can try the old adage of it. Like if you think the stock's too high and it's going to fall, you can try to sell it and then buy it back up later. And, and yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're not careful, you can find yourself in a situation where you need money quickly. And so that means you have to go to your stock and you're selling it at a penalty. Oh, true. If you sell it at the wrong time to get some liquidity, liquidity. Now, the next phase of the game is the engineer phase. This is what I call the worker placement phase. Basically, uh, everybody has a set of engineers. And out on the board are those sections, A through E, that we talked about. And each of those is a different action that the engineers can do. So let's go through and look at what those actions are. Uh, the first thing is Section A lets you build an airport. And airports are, ex- uh, are, are important and generally very fought after uh, because there's only the ability to make one airport per round. So you're restricted to only seven airports in the game. Hmm. So if you've got the money, you can build yourself a lot of airports. And the way airports work is, well, actually, the, the way the game works is that to secure a route, you need to have landing rights in both cities on either end of the route. So if, for instance, you were doing, say, San Francisco to Seattle, you would need to have landing rights in San Francisco and landing rights in Seattle to be able to claim that route. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So there's four ways that you can get landing rights. One of them is to purchase an airport and build the airport in a city. So if you build an airport in a hub city that has a lot of connections, that's dope because you've got, you know, basically landing rights and the potential to finish out a ton of routes. Mm-hmm. The second way you can get landing rights is with destination cards. And you get two of these cards at the beginning of the game. And they basically are just cities that you have landing rights in. They get you started. Okay. And you don't discard them. You have them face up in front of you and that gives you landing rights. So if, for instance, I had the landing rights in Seattle and I was to purchase an airport for Los Angeles, then I could buy that, um, get that route. Make sense so far? Yeah. The third way you can get landing rights, because the board is uh, divvied up into sections. You have South America, North America, 
Asia, Europe, and the Pacific. And those sections are all color-coded. And if you discard a destination card that you have that matches the region for the other city that you want landing rights in, you can get those rights. And finally, you can get landing rights in a city by discarding two destination cards that match each other but not the city's region. So if I had two Pacific landing cards and I needed to get a uh, landing rights in Europe, I could discard those two cards, meaning that I no longer have landing rights in those two cities, to pick up landing rights in another city so that I could get a route. Hmm, okay. So there's a lot of management going on there. you got to really think about what you have, what you need, and where you're going. Question. Yes. So I'm seeing on the map that, like, out in the Pacific Ocean, they have stops at, like, Honolulu, Midway, Wake, Guam. Well, you're probably going to get to that when you talk about airports, so I will just hold my question until then. Or airplanes, because I know there's different airplane types. Yes, yes, I will get to that. I okay, good. I know what your question is. But. You know, you, you, you picking up what I'm putting down? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Think so. That's why an airport is really important, and you really want to focus on building airports in hub cities that connect to a lot of other places. That's, that's how you, they're smartly used. And if you'll notice on the board, Robert, there's four, se- uh, there's four icons next to the A section. That's because this um, action is a bidding action, which means that you could put your engineer down on the three, which means that you're willing to pay $3 to build an airport. And then somebody else can come along and bid five, and somebody else can come along and bid seven, and somebody else can trump you all and build um, build an airport for nine, or they can just throw their engineer on nine to begin with and just be done with it. Hmm. Now, in, the engineers you have are limited, but if you put them down and you get outbid, you get that engineer back, so you, you don't lose the action. Hmm. Okay. Next up is the B section. In the B section, you're going to have four spaces where you get new destination cards. And each of these is a bidding action as well. And you can see that the bidding action on the destination cards starts at zero and caps at six. So there's only going to be four destinations around that you can purchase as a company. And um, you're going to have to outbid other players to get those destinations. Next to the right is the C area. And C is all about buying planes. Now you start the game with three airplanes. There's four different types of planes in the game. There are trimotors, there are clippers, there are cruisers, and there are jets. And you'll notice that each of them has a specific range associated with them. Trimotors only have a range of one, clippers a range of two, cruisers a range of three, and jets a range of four. Now you'll notice that the cruisers and the jets are covered at the beginning of the game. That's because they are not revealed until some time has gone by and you get a little deeper into the game. Because... Every round represents a section of time in Pan Am's history. So as you go deeper into the rounds, new technology is evolving. Planes can go further, they can, and, and, which is a really neat gameplay mechanic. So you're using these planes to put these down on the routes that you're claiming because you have to have a plane that can fly the distance of the route or greater to claim a route. Okay, that, that makes that make sense? sense. Yes. Yeah, so if you've got a tri-motor, you can only claim routes that are one. But if you've got a jet that travels four, you can pretty much claim anything on the board from a one to a four. Now, there's very question. Is there any other reason to take any jet over the other? Like if you have a three route and you have a cruiser doing it, is there a reason to upgrade that to a jet? Well, it just depends on the game that you're trying to play and and the routes that you're trying to secure. If it's more important for you to secure the route than it is to to save your long distance jet for the bigger routes, 
then, um, you know, that, that's a decision that you have to make. But mechanically, like a jet isn't more glamorous or doesn't provide. A no, but the jet routes are worth more to you. Right, right, right. OK, I'm, ju- I'm just I'm just making sure there's, you know, like there's there's no tactical decision to put a jet on a three route just because the jet is cooler or something. So that, that was my question. OK, no, there's there is a mechanical reason, though. There is definitely a mechanical reason. Yeah. In section C with the planes, you have finite amounts of these planes that are available to you. And they're all sitting in in these neat little trays that come with the game that are called hangars. And these are also bidding actions, which means you have to bid for aircraft every round. Now, in section D, you get the first non-bidding action, and that is routes. That is claiming a route. So if you have both of the cities on either end of of um, of the route and you put one of your workers down on section D, which is routes, then you get to claim a route of your choice. And those go from left to right based on when people put their workers down. Okay, question, because we didn't get to this in the jets. So if there is a route that is... Hold on, let me see if I can find one for an example. So say you've got landing rights in Nome, Alaska, and you've got landing rights in San Francisco. Can you bypass Seattle and do a two plus one equals three, or do you have to have the no. plane? Okay. The routes are pre-established. You have to have a plane that'll go that distance or greater. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. So you've got six spots there that people can claim routes on in any given round, and they are not bidding, but uh, whoever gets there first gets to claim first. Okay. Makes sense. And then finally, you have over on the E section, the directives, and there's only three of these that are available any given round. And the directives have two purposes. One, you get to take a card off the directive deck. And these are secret cards that do different things in the game. They'll either tell you when you can play them, or they'll be an end of the game action that might get you some additional points. And these are all, you know, basically rule modifiers that all work, generally speaking, in your favor. Okay. So these are all the different actions uh, that you can take uh, during the engineer phase. Now, Remember, I told you that there was uh, more than one thing that the directives did. The people that put a, uh, an engineer down on directives get priority access the next round. So even if you're not the first player, if you have an engineer in that section resolving from left to right, you get to go before any of the normal play. Mm, okay. So that's the engineering phase. Next up, we get the resolution phase. And that's where we resolve everything that you've put down your engineers to do. And that goes alphabetically from section A to section E. Whoever has the top bid uh, for an airport will have to pay up and then uh, purchase their airport and they get to put it down in whatever city they want. Then for the bidding on the destinations, you have to go uh, in order uh, and you resolve the cost of the bid and then you take the destination card and add it to your player map. Uh, And... At the end of every round, if all four destinations are not purchased, any destination that's left over gets a dollar placed on it, which means that it's more lucrative in you know a couple rounds down the road. So you get to take that dollar as well if you claim that destination. Next, you resolve who got to, to purchase a plane. Uh, again, you just pay your money, grab the plane, and take back your engineer. Uh, next, you get to claim routes. And depending on how you get landing rights, whether or not you're discarding destination cards, for instance, you'll have to do that during this step and resolve that all and uh, claim your routes. And then finally, you get to claim your directives, except you do not take back your engineers because they'll get that priority access the next round. Now, what happens if you bid too much and you're out of money? Well, that's when you have to pay. um, That's when you have to sell your stock and you don't get the full value of the stock. You get to sell the stock 
minus $2. So whatever the current stock price is, minus 2 bucks is what you're going to get. And then you have to use that cash to finish out your purchase. Oh, okay. so that's why the stock starts at 3 I was wondering about that. Mm-hmm. There you go. All right, next you get the Pan Am phase. And in this phase, this is when Pan Am, which is the NPC, is expanding on their own. So there's a die that comes with the game, and that die has four designs on it. There's a South American path, a European path, an Asia Pacific path, and then the actual Pan Am symbol. And what happens is, at the end of the round, you look at that event card that came out at the beginning of the game, and you uh, look at see how many times you have to roll that die. And based on the results of what the die rolls, then Pan Am is going to start gobbling up routes, starting in Miami, because that was where they were based. And they start gobbling up routes in either the South American path, the European path, or the Asia Pacific path. And what you do is you put down a marker on that, and then Pan Am owns that route, and you you can no longer buy it. Now, eventually, they're going to start running into you. And if they run into a route that you own and they want to buy it, well, then they buy it from you. And this is where the distance really comes into play. One route are five, two distance routes are nine, three distance routes are 12, and four distance routes are $14 worth of of in-game money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. But here's the thing. When you add routes and add cities and airports to um, uh, to your map, then you're actually also increasing your income. So when you sell that route, yeah, you get a nice dividend when you sell it, but your income goes down. After Pan Am expands, you resolve your income for the round based on everything that's happened. And then finally, the last thing you do is the stock step. And this is where you're going to get a chance to buy stock in Pan Am if you want to. And stock is always going to cost as much as, um, as the current price on the board. And that stock is what's going to be your, your victory points. So you have to buy your victory points, and you can sell your victory points. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this game, and Pan Am is expanding like a virus. Yeah, it really is. That's exactly what it's like, actually. Man, they're just taking over everything. They've got, like, the entire Gulf of Mexico area locked, and wow. Okay, makes sense. And that's the basics of Pan Am. You're going to want to try and buy routes. You're going to want to try and enhance your income so that you can buy stock. And you're going to want to plan your routes smartly so that you get the chance to sell them near the end of the game to Pan Am. Speaking of having to flip through that rulebook, which I made you do a couple times, how is the rulebook? The rulebook is pretty darn straightforward. Now, I will say this. This game has a learning curve. And I'm warning you because it uses, it uses some concepts from different types of games. And you're going to have a lot of preconceived notions going into this. Like, I brought a lot of Ticket to Ride thought process in the first time I played it. And that wasn't fair to the game because it's not Ticket to Ride. Um, it's it's got more DNA of an 18xx game than anything else. Yeah, I was listening to you play it or describe it, and it sounds like it, it reminded me of a lot of things you do in uh, Lords of Waterdeep. Yeah, somewhat. There's a lot of that in there. So there's, there's it's it's got a really a lot of mixed DNA in it, and it, it ends up being insanely clever like once you figure out how the game works this game is addictive i i want to play it all the time now so this is the weird thing how are the components uh this is a class act like from top to bottom and and i want i want you to take note this game is 35 bucks at target Hmm. so the price is not that high and you get so so much in this box um, there's a ton of cards because you've got a huge stack of these directive cards. You get um, cards that represent the stock in ones and fives. 
and you get four of each round type is what the number is four of each round type so you get a, a, this huge deck that gives you great diversity on on how the events are going to unfold during the game you get a bunch of plastic planes in the different types of zones you get the little trays uh that form up the hangers for the plastic planes and keep everything nice and tidy and the board is huge so there's a ton of stuff in this box i don't know how they got to this price point i gotta be honest with you i would have been comfortable paying 60 bucks for this game there's both 60 dollars worth of experience and 60 dollars worth of stuff in the game and there's a lot of really clever stuff going on too for instance the airplanes you know unless you're like me and you know the actual models of the airplanes that they're based off of planes look like planes right right if you look at the wingtips there are plastic etchings of uh how long a route those planes can fly to give you a nice shortcut so this is the part that like uh i i double taked on this game when i figured it out this game's produced by funco so i was expecting a lot of like weird little bobbleheaded people but it's not it's it's no, this is their new games division. And here's the cool thing. It was developed by Prospero Hall, who you might remember from our Horrified review. Those guys know what's up. They make a damn good game. Yeah, and, and they, they basically bought them to be their board game division, if I remember correctly. So, And they made the art of chill. So there you go. I am infinitely impressed uh, by this game. It is so well put together it's an it scratches that economic itch it scratches your 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 kind of a kingdom building itch it's a thinky game but it's not hard to pick up once you learn the basics of the game that being said there's definitely a learning curve there you've got to come in with a fresh mind you can't bring in your baggage from other games because you're going to want to because you're going to look down and you're going to see routes and you're going to think oh i can i can attack this like ticket to ride because you can't you can't so what is the recommended player count? Recommended player count, ah, oh, that's a tough one. Because, see, one of the things that they do is you, you've, got, uh, you've got those engineers for actions, right? And the way they control player count is by giving you less and less of those engineers. Uh, so if you've got four players, you only get two, uh, I think, three engineers each. But if you've got um, two players out on the board, everybody gets five engineers. Uh, another thing like uh, Lords of Waterdeep. That does yeah. the exact same thing. Okay. And, and so... The gameplay feels so different with two and four players because you have such a, a vastly different number of actions any given round. I can't say that either one is preferable. I think they all worked. If you could say one last thing about this game to communicate to our noble and awesome listeners, what would that thing be? So I walked into this game not knowing a thing. And the only reason I bought this game is because I am an aviation nut and it was... It, it's the same reason I buy a Back to the Future game, right? Right. To me, it's nostalgia. And seeing the Pan Am logo and seeing all those old clippers really made me happy. And I just wanted to have it on my shelf for that reason. And then I set it up, and lo and behold, Prospero Hall has done it again. The same way they did it with Art of Chill, the same way they did it with Horrified, they made a phenomenal game that is absolutely perfect for the assigned theme does some really novel and interesting combinations of mechanics that make it feel original and different from anything else you've played. And it all just works so beautifully. It is an amazing package. I also wanted to say one last thing. I I, I feel that this needs to be reiterated. You're getting all this for $35. The only thing that feels chintzy in this production is the box. It's a little thin and it's held together with stickers when you buy it. (laughs) Little clear stickers. That's funny. And that annoys me. 
because I like my my games to not have stickers. But everything in the box is of a extremely high quality. It's well thought out. The graphic design is gorgeous. I, I mean, like, there's just no negative aspects here. I can't believe that they're giving this game away for $35. It's a $60 game. Cool. All right. It's one of the best economic games I've ever played. And I usually don't vibe with economic games. This one's phenomenal. <laughs> it's really good. So that is Pan Am the Board Game by Funko, of all people. And not a funny-headed uh, collectible among it, which is all the more impressive. No. No little dudes. No little dudes. The engineers, which are the only actual dudes in the game, are, oddly enough, the most abstract of the bunch. They're just a gear. <laughs> Everything else is real straightforward. The, the, the airport looks like a, a, a control tower and the planes are planes. Honestly, this game is, is like my game of the year so far. It's that good. It's only July. It's only July. Well, that's why I said so far. So far. Okay. Fair enough. Well, that brings us to the end of our deep dive, which is our review. But there's other reviews to be had, Robert. Yes. So as I said last time, uh, if you give us a five-star review on... Uh, iTunes. I will read it aloud and I will put to, I will read anything you say verbatim, although I may have to bleep us later. But just saying people, go go leave us a five-star review and write something down and I will read your words on the interwebs. With passion and gusto. Yes. I might add. Yes. And nary any sense of nary a hurdy-gurdy insight. Of self-preservation or or whatever. I will I will read anything anything so go go over to itunes and write down a review and i will be happy to read it even if it's about hurdy-gurdies yes especially if it's about hurdy-gurdies well robert that brings us to the end of episode 91 of the forgot my dice podcast which once again uh, brings me to my normal reminder our digital domains are out there they exist we like it when you use them because we like to hear from you and that lets us talk to you and we all like that. That makes us happy. Yeah, it's been quiet. It's been quiet on the... I mean, I've, I've kind of stepped back from Facebook of late, but uh, yeah, not a lot going on in Discord either. Yeah, it's been quiet in general. It's, uh, I don't know. I don't know about you. This is a busy time of the year for me. Yeah, no, I, it's it's a weird time of the year. It's COVID time, man. It's COVID time. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah. Well, Robert, that brings us to the end of every episode, which is say, do you have any final thoughts for us? First off... Just want to reiterate for the record, Amazon links, please use them. Please buy Pizza Girl by my cousin, because that would be super cool. I would like to get her money. That would make me happy. Or, or go buy Aqualare. Uh, I, will, I will link to that in the, in the, uh, in the show notes as well. But uh, yeah, that game is uh, that game's pretty metal. It's, it's reminding me a lot of Ars Magica in a weird way. But uh, yeah, it's just such a class act, Jonathan. They, like, I've been reading the fiction. because Okay, so like a lot of role-playing games have like little bits of fiction. And there's a little bits of fiction in the beginning of every chapter of this game. But they keep it to one page. So, and it's kind of like a continuous story. But there's obvious jumps in time as it goes through. And it's just it's a pleasure to read. It's such an interesting game. And it's so metal. You know. Because you can summon demons. And it's not pretend demons like D&D demons. It's, it's ones that are air quotes based on real life. It's fun stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'm down. You had me at demons. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird game. I love it so much. I need to finish it up. I've been distracted with, uh, with some other stuff of late, but I need to get back to it. And, and they opened up curbside. And so, uh, there's a comic book I heard about called six guns, which I wanted to read for some reason. I don't even remember why I put it on my list, but I've got the first two trades of it. So I guess I'm going to have to read that soon. 
So there you go. What is it called? It's called Six Guns, I think. Here, hold on. I'll, I'll pull it up on the old library list. Wow, dude, this is cool. It's got some cool art. The, the Sixth Gun? I can't remember. Hold on. I'm looking it up. No, it's called Six Guns. The Sixth Gun. That's what it's called. The Sixth Gun. There's something called Six Guns, too, and that looks cool, too. Now, this is by uh, Colin Brunn, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why... The copy is, during the darkest days of the Civil War, wicked cutthroats came into the possession of six pistols of otherworldly power. In time, the sixth gun, the most dangerous of the weapons, vanished. When the gun surfaces in the hands of an innocent girl, dot, 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 because that's where the copy cuts off on the library list. <laughs> I read the hell out of that. That looks awesome. Yeah, there you go. I, I'm getting the first two trades of it uh, from the library. I'm going to go pick yeah, it up tomorrow. Yeah, that is. That's dope. <laughs> <laughs> I like the setup a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like the cult from Supernatural, but there's six of them. Go murder people. (laughs) Also, I'm picking up a comic book adaptation of The Odyssey and The Living Daylights. So there you go. (laughs) Like the Bond movie? Yeah, yeah, because I I put a whole bunch of them on hold just in case because, you know, they they might. Yeah, and I can't get a view to the kill for some reason, but I got the next one. I don't know what's going on, but whatever. I'll keep it until I need it. All right, which is not so far away. It's only like two episodes away. I know. So there you go. Well, then that uh, that settles it. Join us in two weeks for the last of the Roger Moore Bond movies amongst all our normal shenanigans, which leaves us with only one thing, Robert. And now more than ever, I think these are words to live by. As I saw it put the other day, the very, very first TED Talk. Be excellent to one another and party on. Party on, Jonathan. The music you heard in this podcast was intro by Elithiel. Additional music was provided by Brian Winkleman. Funding for the Forgot My Dice podcast was provided by our supporters on Patreon. Thank you 